Okay, let's continue with uh, uh, the chapter three lecture. We were last time describing this uh, this slide that is describing or defining all the types of transport that happens um, happen across the membrane, and we saw that there are two types: passive transport and active transport, and passive transport are considered simple diffusion, which we describe in terms of concentration gradient. The particles of substances will go across the membrane following the concentration gradient, meaning that particles will go in the direction from the place of higher concentration to a place of lower concentration. Those are the rules about diffusion. And the facilitated diffusion is happening, facilitated by a carrier, which is a membrane protein, as we see here, that works as a pore or a channel. There are also active transport, which requires the consumption or use of ATP, which is energy, because the transport occurs against the concentration gradient, so against the current, from an area lower concentration to an area higher concentration. So let's describe now these types of transport and see some examples of them. Passive processes or types or types of uh, transport, uh, passive uh, transport are diffusion of solutes in general, just simple diffusion or facilitated diffusion. And we include here something, the diffusion of water, which is called osmosis. We're gonna describe that separately, but it's a passive process. And the active process uh, processes occur through different types of transporters and always, or always energy is required for active processes. So starting with the passive transport processes, we have two types described here, channel-mediated and carrier-mediated. We have simple diffusion first, where we see a particle of a substance going across following the concentration gradient, which is shown here. If you notice this type of substance represented by this yellow particle, there are three in this side, and there are one. There's only one inside, so in that direction it should go. It's simple diffusion. For the second substance, there is a channel. There is a channel that is open and makes it easier for that substance, which is the gray circle, and there are three here and one here, so it goes following that direction from higher concentration area to a lower concentration area. And finally, for this hexagon, which represents glucose, glucose is a hexose, or is represented with an hexagon. In the glucose, same, there are three outside and one inside, so the, grade, the concentration gradient goes in this direction. But in this case, there is a member protein which is different, it's not a channel, it's closed. The channel is a pore that is open and allows the entrance of the, of the substance. In this case, it's a little different. The membrane protein is a little different. It's called a carrier. 
because it's gonna get activated only when the glucose get, gets here and it will carry the glucose molecule from one side to another but always following the concentration gradient which goes in that direction from extracellular to intracellular so examples of channels potassium there is a specific potassium channel that allows the entrance of potassium and carrier the glucose there are carriers for glucose and we have two diagrams representing this with a little bit more details uh, the potassium channel is shown on one side and there are more elements to these proteins there's like like a gate here that opens and closes allowing the potassium come through and for the carrier the membrane protein will change configuration and will carry the glucose from one side to another but in either case remember the diffusion or transport happens <coughs> from an area higher concentration to an area lower concentration and it's passive there's no involvement of ATPs or energy and among the passive transport processes we have osmosis that we say we're going to describe this separately it is also diffusion it is also diffusion but in terms of molecules of water osmosis is a net movement of water but there must be some requirements for this to happen the water must go through a membrane which is selectively per, uh, permeable membrane like the cell membrane meaning that it will allow certain things to go through and some other things will not and it always happens from an area of high water concentration to one of lower low, lower water concentration since it's diffusion it must follow the same rules the molecules of water must move must move from an area higher concentration to an area of lower concentration now the water goes through the membrane following two mechanisms one is by simple diffusion going through the lipid bilayer or by using membrane proteins especially for water molecules called aquaporins those specific membrane proteins that help the water to go through those are called aquaporins So explaining more how osmosis happens, imagine this uh, container with a U-shape and there is a membrane separating both sides of this system that we see here as a selectively permeable membrane. In this case, this membrane is allowing the water molecules to go through, it's permeable to water, but these solutes the yellow diamonds are not going through the membrane is selectively selective it only allows movement of water not the solutes okay initially starting conditions we have this situation here the left arm right arm in the left arm there's just water and the right arm we have a solution of solution of this particular substance represented by the yellow diamonds if we count the time and the time starts running 
there is a moment at which, after some seconds, that you see osmosis happening. Why? Because there is a difference in the concentration in the left arm and the right arm, with the right arm. Where there is more water, in the left or in the right? Hmm? Where, does, where is there more water? Hmm? In which two of the arms uh, you, have, you have more water? The starting conditions. Look at the starting conditions. Yeah. In starting conditions, there is more water in the left and less water in the right arm. Following the loss of diffusion, the molecules move from an area higher concentration to an area lower concentration. Therefore, in equilibrium stage, you will see water move moving from the left arm to the right arm. The membrane is selective, so it will allow the water to go through. And the yellow diamonds that represent this solute, this substance in solution in the right arm. Why is not moving from the right arm to the left arm? Since we see that there's more of these yellow diamonds in the right arm, there's none in the left arm. Why is not moving in that direction? Because following the laws of diffusion, it should move, right? Why is not moving? Why is not diffusing? It's selectively permeable. Because the membrane is selective. It's not allowing the yellow diamonds to go through. It only allows movement of water. That's a condition for osmosis to happen. And if we want to restore conditions, what we have to do? Push water from the right arm to the left arm. How we do that? Well, in this system, it's represented by this embolus that we put in the right arm and we push it. So water will return to the left arm to restore initial conditions. But for that to happen, we have to apply some pressure, some force. And that force is what we call osmotic pressure. It's that force that we need to exert to restore these to initial conditions. Or in other words, is the pressure or force that the water has and when crossing that membrane from one direction to another. So this is osmosis. And the osmotic pressure is that force that moves the water from one side to another. Questions? Yes. So is this just happening throughout our, our entire body, throughout all our cells, or where exactly is this occurring? Happens, osmosis happens whenever there is two sides across a membrane which is selectively permeable. Plasma membrane, cell membrane, is a selectively permeable membrane. So this happens in the cell, in every single cell of our body. Whenever there is a different concentration of water outside and inside, water will move and diffuse. This actually happens in every single cell of our body, depending on the concentration of water. Now, what sometimes it gets confusing because um, uh, the books describe osmosis in terms of movement of water, but making reference to the amount of solute. Look at this. I can say the water moves 
in osmosis, the water moves from an area of higher concentration of water to an area of lower concentration of water. But I can say it in this other way around. Osmosis is movement of water from an area of higher from an area of lower concentration of solutes to an area of higher concentration of solutes, which is true. When I see solutes, I'm talking about the yellow diamonds in this system. It moves from an area of low concentration of solutes from the left arm, where there's none, to an area of high concentration of solutes to the right arm. So it may be expressed in either way. So be careful with that expression. It may be expressed in terms of water or in terms of the solute. But notice where is there is more or less concentration of water or the solute. Questions? <coughs> Tonicity is another term that we're going to describe. And tonicity is um, that characteristic of solutions uh, in body fluids like the blood. This drawing represents a classical experiment that is performed with red blood cells. Um, let me magnify this a little bit. First, situation number one, we have a red blood cell, we have this red blood cell, and um, it's a normal red blood cell, normal red blood cell, and it is in a solution that we call isotonic, isotonic, what it means, it means that the concentration of the fluids, the amount of solutes and water or the fluid uh, uh, that is surrounding the cell is the same as the concentration of solutes and water inside the red blood cell. Iso means equal, same. So the same concentration is inside and outside the cell. And the red blood cell is happy there. That's how we see the red blood cells in the blood when we see under the microscope or get a sample. But if I put a red blood cell in a hypotonic solution, like in number two, which means that the amount of water outside the cell is higher than inside the cell. There's a difference. It's a hypotonic solution. The solutes, and saying in the other way, the solutes outside the red blood cell are in less concentration than inside the cell. And therefore, what's going to happen? Osmosis. The water will move from outside to inside. And we have a swollen red blood cell. And in situation number three, we see a red blood cell now in a solution called hypertonic which contains more solutes outside than inside the cell. And in that case, the water will move from inside to outside. And we see the red blood cell shrinking. Crenated means when the cell is destroyed because it's shrunk, shrinking too much and it's completely destroyed. It's crenated, we say. Isotonic solution, hypotonic solution, and hypertonic solution. The blood is isotonic solution. And the situation number one, is how we find the red blood cells uh, normally. Yes. What kind of solutes are we talking about that go in and outside? 
What kind of solids we're talking about? We're talking about everything that the blood contains, meaning sodium, potassium, glucose, amino acids, everything, mm -hmm. depending on any solute. And, of course, amount of water related to that. And it's a natural process through every blood cell's life that it, it goes through all this swelling. Yeah, but not to the point of getting destroyed. And uh, that happens actually when we, um, especially when we use IV solutions. The IV solutions intravenous, when we inject them into the vein. What do you think it should be? Isotonic, hypotonic, or hypertonic? What would you use? Makes sense. Isotonic. I don't want my red blood cells to be destroyed, like swollen or shrunken. I don't want my red blood cells to be damaged. I'm putting fluids to help the, the, the subject. Person may be losing blood and in shock, they need fluids. And I'm going to restore the fluids with isotonic solutions so I will not damage my red blood cells. That is what we use when we get IV solutions. We don't want to use hypotonic or hypertonic solutions. Sometimes this may happen, but the red blood cell will readjust quickly, and the blood, you know, is filtered by the kidneys. So the kidneys will get rid of extra solutes. We regulate the concentration of the blood so the red blood cell will not suffer. It happens, this happens all the time in our body. Not only with the red blood cells, with the rest of the cells of our body. Questions of osmosis. Okay. Active transport. Active transport is using ATPs. And we use ATPs because we have to move chemicals, substances, molecules against the concentration gradient from low area to high concentration area. For that, we need energy. We need energy to go against the current. The best example is a protein, a membrane protein called the sodium-potassium pump. This sodium-potassium pump is found in all cells. And the job of the sodium-potassium pump is move sodium and potassium in different directions, in different directions. Normally, the concentration gradient of sodium and potassium is like this. There is more sodium outside than inside, and there is more potassium inside than outside. So the arrows here is showing the direction at which the sodium-potassium <laughs> should move. But what we see here, by the action of the sodium-potassium pump, is that sodium is expelled and potassium is imported, so it's brought inside. And here, number four. Potassium is coming in, and sodium is leaving the cell against the concentration gradient. Potassium should leave the cell, not come in the cell, but we are bringing it in using ATP's energy. And that's what the sodium-potassium pump does. Sodium-potassium pump is very important in the nervous system. When you get to 40B and start studying the nervous physiology and the electrophysiology, how the electrical impulse happens, we'll talk again about the sodium-potassium pump because it helps to restore the equilibrium after the electrical signal. There are other type, types of transports like vesicles, and this is very straightforward. 
exocytosis, endocytosis. The prefix is exo and endo means outside and inside. So exocytosis is movement of substances using a vesicle to the outside of the membrane. And endocytosis bringing things inside to the cytoplasm. We have some examples here, exocytosis. That's the way that the neurotransmitters in the nervous system are released. And endocytosis is the way that some cells will uptake LDL, which is a type of uh, lipoprotein, the cholesterol that uh, the body needs. And transcytosis is both combined. You got to just go across the cell. On one side of the cell, endocytosis, the thing is inside and then goes to the other side <coughs> of the cell and is released by exocytosis. Phagocytosis is an example of this endocytosis because uh, the macrophage, which is the cell that performs this, gets rid of bacteria, viruses in this way. In general, germs, first line of defense of the immune system, um, will just engulf the microorganism and then bring a lysosome, which is a digestive organelle, and destroy the bacteria. Residual bodies may be eliminated or may stay inside the macrophage. We have a lot of macrophages in the lungs. Have you seen those lungs that usually they show this for uh, smoking prevention? They try to scare you not to smoke because your lungs will be like this. Well, those black spots are macrophages which take all the carbon particles from smoke and it remains inside the cytoplasm as residual bodies. And they get there, stay there in the lung tissue. Of course, there are many of them and we see the black spots when we examine those lungs. Okay, questions, comments? Let's describe more about the cytoplasm and the <coughs> contents of the cytoplasm, which are the organelles. Cytoplasm contains the cytosol, which is this material, fluid, gel-like material, containing intracellular fluid in which the organelles are. This is where all the chemical reactions happen and energy transfer occurs at all times in the cytosol. In organelles, the word organelle stands for small organ. It's actually a specialized structure that performs different uh, tasks related with the cell cycle or cell survival. First, the cytoskeleton is a network of filaments, proteins, fibrous proteins usually, <coughs> that is running across and all over the cytosol, like a network, it's like a frame, provides support and determines the shape of many cells. There are three types of uh, these uh, uh, filaments, or proteins that are arranged in microfilaments, intermediate filaments, and microtubules. And the difference is the size of them. Microfilament, intermediate, and microtubules. All made up of proteins, cytoskeleton. 
The microfilaments are the ones that determine uh, the structure and support of the plasma membrane, as we see here. Intermediate filaments, they determine the shape of the cell and provide frame for the organelles. And microtubules, larger fibers, thicker, that are important components of the centrosome, which is an organelle that is activated in cell division, making mitosis. That's how the chromosomes travel from one pole to the center and to the center to the other pole of the cell. It determines like tracks. Two important organelles are cilia and flagella. Cilia is the plural word for cilium. That's singular. Cilium, <coughs> one. Cilia, many. Flagella is the plural word for flagellum. One flagellum, many flagella. So cilia are short. Are short and they are on the cell surface and the apical surface of the cell and they move. They move things. Like in the respiratory system, we have cells with cilia. It, it looks like a brush. But those hairy projections, they move in one direction from inside to outside. And flagella is only one large projection, like we saw last week in the sperm tail. These proteins, of components of microtubules, are contractile proteins. They move. And therefore, the cilia and flagella move in different directions with different patterns. And in the case of the sperm, it determines the movement of these cells. It helps for movement. As we see here, there's a couple of examples of cilia and flagella. The cilia, uh, I mean the flagella, moves following this pattern. It's like a whip. You get a whip and you do this, it's exactly the same way that the flagella moves. And that's how it determines the movement of the cell, of the sperm. And in the case of the cilium, there is this one, two, three, four, five, six, seven sequence. There is like a cycle. It stretches in this way and it returns and recoils to the initial position. And then it stretches again. It's like a brush moving in this direction, only one direction. And it's very important in the respiratory system, in the cells of the trachea, the bronchi. Because usually, what is the first thing we do in the morning before you say your first word in the morning? Hmm? What, is, what else? You clear your throat, usually. You're going to speak and, <clears throat> and you feel some stuff in your throat. You decide to swallow it or spit it up. But what that stuff is, is all the mucus with things that you breath during the night and the cilia were moving those things from the bronchi, the small bronchi, until your trachea and the throat. And you have all of them here in the morning. That's a very important function of the cilia. What if they don't work? All the stuff remains inside. What if you smoke too much? Well, the cilia don't move or move slowly. And you have more irritation. 
What happens if you breathe in cold weather? Or you spend the night out and it's zero degrees outside or 32. Then the cilia will move slow. And if there's a virus around, you get it. You get an infection. So that's the importance of the cilia, especially. But both cilia and flagellum, they move. Ribosomes. Ribosomes, organelles for proteins, protein synthesis. There are two subunits of the ribosomes that you see here. They are attached. And important to remember, ribosomes, protein synthesis. They make up, they build proteins, which, if you remember, are chains of amino acids. So these ribosomes get amino acids in assembly, the long chain, one by one. Endoplasmic reticulum, or ER, two types, rough and smooth. Endoplasmic reticulum is a network of membranes. It actually have the same structure of the cell membrane. It's an endomembrane system, we call it, because it's only one thing. Cell membrane continues with the endoplasmic reticulum. Endoplasmic reticulum continues with the nuclear envelope. All of it is a network of membranes. But specifically, that part containing the cytoplasm and attached with ribosomes, we call rough ER. This is where the proteins are produced because the ribosomes are related with the production of proteins. So the ribosomes produce assembly the proteins and put it inside the, in, the ER between these spaces of the membranes of the rough ER. But there is another portion of ER which is smooth. No ribosomes. What happens here? Fatty acids are produced here, steroids, and there are enzymes to detoxify certain drugs. Some medications are broken down in the liver, and the liver cells in the smooth ER, they have enzymes for breaking down these medications, like Tylenol, for instance, is one of them. It's broken down in the liver cells, right here, because there are enzymes that degrade those uh, components. Golgi. Part of this endomembrane system, thing is that it's separated, it's not continuous with uh, ER. But what happens in the Golgi is the proteins that were made by the ribosomes, they will be modified, sorted out, and packaged, ready to send to different destinations. It's like a packaging, shipping of the department of the cell. Prepare all these proteins and send them to different places. Some of them remain in the cell because they are being used as enzymes, components of the cell, or they may be sent out to other cells. That's a little detail of how this process happens one by one. You see here the rough ER surrounded by ribosomes, and you see the protein here as it is being made. It is taken through transport vesicles from the rough ER to the Golgi, and the Golgi number three is received, and it travels inside all these membranes, and starts getting packaged, modified, sorted out, until is sent in vesicles, either to outside or may remain inside the cell.
processing and packaging. That's what happens in the Golgi. Lysosomes are the digestive system of the cell. There are very powerful digestive enzymes in the lysosome. They are the ones that attack different particles, bacteria, viruses, as part of the uh, first line of defense of the immune system. Part of these vesicles, or there are many vesicles, some of them are lysosomes, and there are some other small vesicles that have specific names like peroxisomes, proteasomes, depending on the type of enzymes they have. Peroxisomes, they have enzymes to detoxify substances like alcohol. There's a lot of this in the liver. Proteasomes, because they contain enzymes to destroy unneeded damage of faulty proteins. Because in the process of production of proteins by the ribosomes, sometimes there are mistakes, errors, and some proteins are not well done, and so they have to be destroyed as a quality of control uh, performed. Mitochondria, very interesting organelle because it's considered the powerhouse. Here is where we make molecules of ATP. That's why it's a powerhouse. There are more mitochondria in cells that consume a lot of energy, like the muscles, liver, kidneys. Sperm cell has a lot of mitochondria in the mid-piece around the neck. They need energy for moving the flagellum. And there is a, it contains its own DNA, a segment, a piece of DNA is inside the mitochondria that is only containing the mitochondria inside. The nucleus, the nucleus is surrounded by a membrane, which is called the nuclear envelope. Double layer membrane, a phospholipid bilayer, so it's structurally is same as a plasma membrane. There are pores in this membrane that facilitate transport of proteins, enzymes, and even small fragments of RNA that come out of the nucleus to the cytoplasm. Nucleolus is a spherical body. This is where ribosomes are produced in the nucleus and then sent out to the cytoplasm. And of course the DNA, which is contained in the chromosomes. Combined with protein molecules, the histones. The chromosomes contain the DNA all packed and compacted. This diagram shows that the DNA, the double helix here, is wrapped around the histones forming nucleosomes. And the nucleosomes, they all get together and all bundle up like this, forming the different parts of the chromosome. That's what we see under the microscope and we can take pictures of it. Like the onion cells that we see here, in different stages of cell division or mitosis. The chromosomes are typically described like this. They have a short arm and a long arm. And we can see how the DNA is all packed in histones.
Now, what's the relationship between DNA, RNA, and the proteins? It's very important because it helps understand how the genes work and how the genes are expressed. When we say gene expression, we mean DNA contains the genes. The genes are segments of the DNA that contain information. Well, how that information is translated into something with meaning. Like we know that the hair color information is contained in the DNA, but how that is expressed, how the information on the DNA ends up like a brown hair or gray hair, there are different steps. The first step starts with the DNA, and it's called transcription. The DNA, double helix, contains information. First step is we're going to transcribe information from the DNA. We're going to read, transcribe information, make a copy of the DNA, like making a photocopy and bring it out. Without copy or photocopy is RNA. The RNA is made at a specific segment of the DNA, bringing information, getting information from the DNA. And this RNA goes through the nuclear pores, gets out to the cytoplasm, and it has that information. Okay, what information? Information about a protein. That's what it has. Well, the ribosomes will get that segment of RNA and read it. That's what we call translation. It's going to translate that information into the language of proteins. And we see the protein being built here. Now, we get different proteins and different arrangement of amino acids in different proteins, and they are sent out to the skin cells, and the skin cells start producing the hair with that particular characteristic of being brown, or hair, or blonde, or any color. That's how the thing works. And that's called gene expression. That's how the gene expresses. Step one, transcription, and step two, translation. Same thing here. A little bit more complex, but it's the same thing, essentially. Some more details here. In the first step, we see transcription. DNA double helix is being transcribed into a segment of messenger RNA. That's how we call that RNA because it's bringing the message from the nucleus to the cytoplasm. First, it's built as a pre-messenger because then it has to be spliced and uh, selected and, and purified. But at the end, we have this finished messenger RNA that comes out through the pores and is read by the ribosome here in the process called translation. Now we see how this polypeptide is being built. This ribosome, what it does is bring amino acids one by one, and now those amino acids are attached to a different type of RNA called the transfer RNA, which brings all this blue circles are amino acids and they are we say they are charged this RNA is charged with amino acids it's bringing amino acids so what what the ribosomes does is bring this transfer RNA containing amino acids and start building the protein one by one 
So we have the two types of RNAs in here. The messenger RNA, which brings the message. The transfer RNA, which contains amino acids that are going to be used to build the protein. Questions to this point. A few words about mitosis. Cell division. For this, we need to first know that the human cells contain 23 pairs of chromosomes, which make 46 in total. 23 pairs. Now, these chromosomes align in pairs, and each pair is called homologous chromosome because it's the same type, it contains the same information. The thing is, we bring, we carry 23 pairs because 23 chromosomes come from our mother and 23 from our father. We get together all of them in the nucleus and that's how we have 46 chromosomes. So they are aligning pairs, one from our mother, one from our father, containing the same information. But then the information will be expressed depending on other characteristics like dominance, recessive genes, and other genetic uh, features. Well, the cells of our body that have 46 chromosomes in total are called diploid cells. 46, 46 chromosomes or 23 pairs. In the study of the nucleus and the chromosomes, we call this karyotype. This is the study of the scripted, the study of the chromosomes. What they do is take a, a sample of tissue or blood and they get cells that are in mitosis and take pictures, images of the different chromosomes and then cut them out and align them by the shape. And here we have the complete list of chromosomes of human cells. The pair number one, the pair number two, the pair number three, and so on. For this particular case, we have this description. It's a karyotype 46XX. It means that when we get to the pair number three, the pair number 23, I say, it's a little different. There are X chromosomes and Y chromosomes. If we find that the pair number 23 contains two chromosomes described as X chromosomes, then we describe it as 46XX and it's a female. These are called the sex chromosomes. But if we get this karyotype, the pair number 23, we see one X chromosome and one Y chromosome, which is a very small chromosome here. And we describe that as 46XY and it's a male. How we get to that point? Well, by mitosis and meiosis, which are the two processes of cell division. The diploid cells, the ones that have 46 chromosomes or 23 pairs, they follow this cycle. They follow this cycle. Uh, let's start the cycle here with this cell. This cell is in a point of, this, of its life where it's going or entering into mitosis. 
we get this area, mitosis with all the stages, prophase, metaphase, anaphase, telophase. Well, at the end of this mitosis, we have two daughter cells, which are identical to the first one, the original. But then these cells, these daughter cells, will go through its own life cycle here. The first is called, the first phase is called G1. The cell is active, it's performing all its duties, um, and then <coughs> enters into S phase, which means synthesis. At this point, the DNA starts getting replicated in preparation for the division. Third phase, or next phase, is called G2, the G from growth. G2, in this phase, Enzymes are produced, proteins are produced, centrosome, everything is getting ready for a division. And what follows is mitosis. These cells, these daughter cells, now are at the point of mitosis again. And that's how the cells go dividing, dividing, dividing. Yes? Does every type of cell have the same lifespan? No, this is just an example. These are just arbitrary times oh. for some particular type of cell. Every cell has its own lifespan and the life cycle. Yeah, maybe from hours, days, or even months or years. Now notice here that there is another stage called G0. G0 we call it when the cell is not following the G1S, G2 mitosis. And from G1 it gets into a dormant condition, it's kind of inactive, still alive, working, doing all his duties, but it's not divided, and it goes into the G0. An example of this type of cell is a cell that we have in our body and is in G0. What is that? What is the cell of the body that will not go into mitosis? Huh? The brain cells, the neurons, yeah? The neurons are described as being in G0. They don't divide, they don't replicate. They work, of course, they are very active, but they don't get into this uh, cell cycle like the other cells. And then we have the uh, phases of mitosis, as we said. Interphase, the cell is not divided, but it's getting ready. And that comprises all these phases, G1, S, and G2. And then enters into mitosis. Mitosis and cytokinesis, which means that's just as the split uh, of the diaphragm, the splitting of the, di of the cell membrane. And... Um, and finally, the division in two. DNA replication is a process that happens right before mitosis. Because if a cell has 46 chromosomes, how is going to give place to two cells with each 46 chromosomes each? DNA has to replicate or duplicate. And this is what happens. The double strand opens up, and from each of the strands, more nucleotides are added, and now we have two copies of the DNA, the original DNA. And this happens uh, 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 under the action of enzymes in the nucleus just before the cell enters into mitosis. Here we have a summary of all the stages of mitosis. We have seen some of them in the lab. We described like metaphase, where the chromosomes are aligned in the central axis of the cell and you can see the microtubules of the centrosome 
guiding these this chromosomes from the center part of the cell to each pole in preparation for division. We call that anaphase. Finally, in telophase, this cell splits into daughter cells, finishing the process of mitosis. And from one original cell, we have two identical cells after the mitosis. Now that's mitosis. Meiosis is the other process of reproductive, reproductive cell division. And every species that reproduces um, using sexual, sexual reproduction uh, uh, type, we see the presence of these special cells called the gametes. Gametes are, in the case of the human, the ovum and the sperm. And notice that they are represented with an N, the letter N because N means 23, and 2N is pair of 23 chromosomes, or 23 pairs of chromosomes. The diploid cell is described as 2N, and the hyploid <laughs> cells are the cells that contain just 23N. If a sperm and an ovum or egg get together in fertilization, now, 23 of the egg plus 23 of the sperm, we have a diploid cell, a zygote, with 46 chromosomes. And that happens after fertilization. The arrangement of the chromosomes will be unique, and this is a, a new individual, the diploid zygote, with unique characteristics. The DNA is arranged in a very particular way. And from there follows mitosis. From one cell divides in two, four, eight, and so on until we have the adult. Multicellular diploid adult cells. For that to happen, we have the meiosis. Meiosis is also cell division, but in this case, from one cell, from one cell, the original cell, we will end up with up to four different cells. And each of these cells will have just 23 chromosomes. There are two parts of the meiosis. And uh, they follow the same stages. They go into interphase, prophase, metaphase, anaphase, telophase, and division. But at the end, we end up with four daughter cells, which are going to be haploid cells, not diploid, 23 chromosomes only. So we get to more details about this process of fertilization and uh, how the sperm develops, how the egg develops, when we get to the reproduction chapter, and uh, I will see how the eggs are produced and the sperm are produced by my, uh, meiosis. Now, before we go to the next chapter, a couple of words about cellular diversity. All these cells, and we saw some of these cells in the lab last week, smooth cells, sperm cell, red blood cell, epithelial cell. We didn't see the nerve cell under the microscope, but we'll see it later. There are many different types of cells, and each type is for a reason. 
The structure resembles or determines the function. Many different shapes and sizes. And this diversity allows organization of the cells into specific tasks and specific functions for tissues and organs. A couple of words about stem cells. Now we're talking about cells. This cell, called totipotent cell, is the zygote. So right after the sperm and egg get together, fertilization, then we have a zygote. That zygote is going to give place to all the organs, tissues, and different types of cells of the body. So we call it totipotent, meaning this cell can turn in any type of cell. Then after some divisions, it will turn into pluripotent because it gets more specialized. And it will give place to different lines of cells like muscle, nerve, bone, other, and other tissues. <coughs> then later we have all these different types of cells. Blood stem cells, muscle stem cells, nerve stem cells, bone cells, and even skin stem cells. They're, they're still called stem cells because they can, they have the ability to give place to other types of cells, but normally what they do is just guarantee that we have replacement of our cells. Like in the skin, we replace the skin cells every two weeks, three weeks. Where the new cells come from? From stem cells that we have hidden in some part of the epithelial of our, of our skin. Blood stem cells in the bone marrow, in the, in the bones, we have cells, stem cells, that are continuously producing red blood cells, white blood cells, and that must last for a lifetime. So those are different populations of stem cells that we have in every single tissue. Usually the research is made using pluripotent cells from embryonic stem cells or maybe done by these cells which are called adult stem cells. We can take those cells from the skin through different processes, activate them and they can turn into any other type of cell after stimulation of course. Questions, comments? Yes, there are specific segments uh, which are called the um, promoter regions and uh, through different procedures they activate that part of the DNA and the cell is like is reprogrammed and start developing another type of cell. They can do that with adult stem cells like this. Okay, let's have a break, 10 minutes. Okay, let's continue. So it's time for going into the next chapter, which is the tissue, tissue level of organization. And uh, this week, we're gonna do tissues in the lab also. We're gonna see all types of tissues under the microscope. So some definitions first. <coughs> We know this, tissues are a group of cells working together. But we can add something else, now that we're talking about types of tissues. They have a common embryonic origin. They come from the same class of stem cells, we can say. 
and different types of stem cells for different lines of cells will turn into specific types of tissues that we find in different organs. Histology we call the study of tissues. Um, again, don't forget that every single shape of cell and type of tissue uh, is with a purpose. The structure, the features will determine the function. The cells are part of the tissues and they are kept together by different mechanisms. One of them is called cell junctions. Cell junctions are special structures that help to bind, to connect, and to keep the cells together. In this diagram we see all different types. We have tight junctions, adherence junctions, gap junctions, desmosomes, and hemidesmosomes. Let's describe these types of cell junctions mentioning some examples. Starting with tight junctions. Tight junctions as we see here in this example on the very top of these cells. And let's develop that here. They are whenever there is a, a, a leak-proof seal is needed So we're talking about intestines, intestinal cells. They have tight junctions, keeping them together. Urinary bladder, because it contains the urine. Anywhere where the leak-proof seal is needed, there will be tight junctions connecting neighbor cells. Adherence junctions. Adherence junctions are like zippers and belts. It's a belt because it's go all around the cell. And they keep the tissues from separating. Usually the cells are subject to stretch uh, and a lot of uh, uh, forces pulling in different directions. If we go back to this generic picture. We see an adherence junction and an adhesion belt. So these proteins or these structures are all around the cell and connected at the level of adherence junctions. These proteins are called C-adherin. These are glycoprotein. It forms like a plaque around the cell. It sounds like zone or belt around the cell. Example, in some parts of the intestine, some parts of the intestine show this type of cell junction. We have more detail of the uh, adherence junction here. We see the C adherent dimers and how they are anchored all together like a zipper thing. And the bundles of filaments that work as a belt or adherence belt. Desmosomes are like spot welds. It's a very resistant junctions. They also use this C-adherin protein. And they are found whenever the cells are need to be strongly attached to each other, like in the skin cells. In the skin, we have many of these desmosomes. 
you pull the skin and you don't tear it because the cells are well kept together by these desmosomes. And we can see the plaque at different levels, a transmembrane protein which is a C adhering, and it's actually like a zipper, like a zipper that is well, well connected and tight, and is described as a spot weld. And hemidesmosomes, this is a desmosome but just half of it. When the cell is connected to the basement membrane, which is a membrane uh, that don't belong to a cell, but is like a floor where the cells are resting on. And sometimes the, these mechanisms attach the cell to this mem basement membrane. And it's not a complete desmosome, it's a hemidesmosome, just half of, it, of the structure. In the epithelium we see this, in epithelial cells. Gap junctions is the last type of junction that we're going to describe. Gap junctions <coughs> are proteins in the membrane that connect to proteins in the membrane of the neighbor cell. Proteins are called connexons. And they determine pores. Pores that allow exchange of substances between neighbor cells. Ions are able to go through and pass from one cell to another. We find cells with gap junctions in the heart. The heart is one of those organs that have gap junctions because every single cell in the heart is connected to each other. That's one of the features of the cells in the heart. And here we see the connections working, see the exchange of substances, ions, small molecules from neighbor cell to the next one. Okay, so there are four types of tissues. And this is what we're gonna follow. Epithelial tissues, connective tissue, mus muscle, and nervous tissue. Epithelial tissue. Let's start with the epithelial tissue. Yeah, we're going to go over all these tissues in the lab to get today, this week. Epithelial tissues cover cover the surface of the body, cover um, surface of organs. Uh, line organs in the inside, hollow organs like the intestines, tubes, digestive tube, the respiratory airways, the trachea, bronchi, body cavities like abdominal cavity, thoracic cavity. They also form glands like sweat glands. And we classify the different types of epithelial tissues following two criteria. One of them is the arrangement of layers and the second criteria criterion is the cell shape. <coughs> the arrangement we call it simple when it's only one single layer of cells. We call it stratified when there's two or more layers of cells as part of this tissue. 
And there's one more arrangement, which is a particular type of tissue called pseudo-stratified. <coughs> the prefix pseudo means fake, false, because we can interpret this as pseudo-stratified is falsely stratified. It's not stratified, actually, it's simple. But it looks like stratified. Why? Because you see the nucleus of the cells at different levels. And it looks like there are two layers, like if you count or trace a line here, you see one layer of nucleus, two layers of nucleus. Oh, there are two layers. No. The cells have different heights. And therefore, the nuclei are at different levels. But if you notice, it's only one simple layer of cell. We call it pseudostratified. Pseudostratified. We'll see pictures of that and uh, slides of that today. Second criterion is cell shape. We have a squamous, like the cells we saw last week in the lab, the cells of our cheeks. They are like this. They look like tiles. Squamous, flat cells. They are flat cells. Cuboidal, as the name says, like a cube. And columnar. Columnar are cylindric cells, like tall <coughs> cells. Taller than wide. Notice that every single epithelium shown here is resting on basement membrane. That is always, we will always see that, yes. So will cuboil most likely be stratified and columnar be pseudostratified? <coughs> Not necessarily. Stratified Epithelium may be of different types, maybe stratified squamous, maybe stratified cuboidal, or stratified columnar. So what follows here is what we can play with these types and we can have different combinations like this. Because actually there are epithelia that are simple squamous, simple cuboidal, or simple columnar. Or stratified squamous, stratified cuboidal, stratified columnar. So the stratified is a particular type and it's only one that we consider separated from the other combinations. So always when we describe an epithelial tissue, we use these words. Or it's simple or stratified and it's squamous, cuboidal, or columnar. Connective tissues. Connective tissue is for protection, support, to bind organs, connect organs. <coughs> Examples, fat is a type of connective tissue, blood is a type of connective tissue. There is a long list of, uh, uh, of different subtypes of connective tissue as we will see. Muscular tissue, Contraction to make the body move. And nervous tissue detect changes in the body and respond through nerve impulses. The neurons are the best uh, example of the nervous tissues. Now all these cells, we were talking about stem cells previously, and we say all these tissues come from cells and all these cells derive from different types of stem cells. Well, all those stem cells are divided in three 
layers, which are called primary germ layers. This happens during the embryonic development, during the embryonic stage, when the cells are developing. We have three primary germ layers, and they are called endoderm, mesoderm, and ectoderm. And all types of tissues that we're going to study, they derive from one of these three primary germ layers. For instance, let's see examples. Nervous tissue and the skin, part of the skin, derive from the ectoderm. Digestive tract, the lungs, respiratory tract, urinary bladder, derive from the endoderm. Muscles, bones, many connective tissues, blood vessels, they derive from the mesoderm. <coughs> so three primary gel layers will give place to all the different types and subtypes of tissues. Yes. So is that what we're stimulating when we try to create different types of cells? Yeah, you can get cells from the endoderm and uh, you can program to be stomach or liver or urinary bladder. Okay, some features of the epithelial cells are shown here. Uh, we see the cells from the epithelium, the one of the components, main components, so we call them epithelium. But these cells have different surfaces. One of them is the basal surface, the one that is resting on basement membrane. They have an apical surface, which is a free surface and the lateral surface that connects to the neighbor cells. Basement membrane is made of substances, uh, proteins, glycoproteins, and they have two components, a basal lamina and reticular lamina. It depends on the composition of, the, of this uh, membrane. And underneath, there is always, under the epithelium, there will, there will be always a basement membrane. And then below, connective tissue. That is a fact. You always have the epithelium, and what's below is connective tissue. So this is a description of the basement membrane, and that's where the epithelium always sits, through the basal surface. Some features of the epithelial tissue. The epithelial tissue is avascular. There is no blood vessels in the epithelial tissue. Like, if you see these cells, there is no blood vessels in between these cells. Even if they have multiple layers, there's no blood vessels in between. <coughs> it's avascular, there's no blood vessels there. They have a high rate of cell division. They divide very quickly and fast to replace the old cells. And the functions are maybe protection, like in the skin, Filtration, like in the kidneys. Secretion, like in the glands of different types, like sweat glands. Absorption, like in the small intestine. Excretion, like in the kidneys again. So all these functions, whenever you see cells, epithelial cells are performing some of these functions. And remember, they are avascular. There is no blood vessels here. In general, the epithelial tissue is divided in covering lining and glandular. So we're going to describe 
all different subtypes related with covering and lining, skin, blood vessels. Glands are also formed by the epithelium, and we're going to describe as component of the skin, like sweat glands, thyroid glands, in the case of the endocrine system. So again, the epithelia classify according to the shape of the cell first and according to the thickness or arrangement of the, of the layers. Simple or stratified, and squamous, cuboidal, and columnar. And here we have the different description of them according to the shape. We see the picture and the description of the features of these cells. Squamous, cuboidal, and columnar. These are the shapes. Or, we can see here the arrangement. Simple, we said, one layer. Stratified, two or more layers. And pseudostratified is only one particular type, um, which is uh, not stratified, is pseudostratified. And as I said before, we can combine different simple, maybe squamous, cuboidal, columnar, or stratified, squamous, cuboidal, cuboidal and columnar. And we will find these types of tissues in the body. So, naming the epithelial tissue, the different types of cells, if we, if we have three different cell shapes and three different cell arrangements, we have nine possible types of tissues, according to the diagram. But not all of them are found in our body. Starting with the pseudostratified, we say there's only <coughs> one type. And there is one more, which is called transitional. It's also unique. There's only one, transitional. There's pseudostratified, it's also unique. So we have less number of combinations. Now, if the layers, if we have a stratified type, how do we know if they are squamous, cuboidal, or columnar? Well, we take the shape of the apical layer of cells. If the top layer is squamous, even though the layers underneath are cuboidal or columnar, we call it stratified squamous. We take the shape of the last, the top layer of cells. Questions, comments? Let's stop it here. Let's continue with the description of tissues in the lab when we are going to set up all these